Proverbs chapter 6. If you can grab a Bible out of the rack in front of you, it's on page 546. I'm going to read it. It's long, but I think it's worth our time. We believe that God commands us to devote ourselves to the reading of Scripture, and so this is a part of our service where we do that. I'm going to read the passage, then I'll pray, and then we'll get to work. This is Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 20. Proverbs chapter 6, starting in verse 20. My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way to life, keeping you from your neighbor's wife, from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife preys on your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it cost him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, bribe, however great it is. My son, keep my word, and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands, and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman, with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice. I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in, then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. She is unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home, now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurked. She took hold of him and kissed him. And with a brazen face, she said, Today I fulfilled my vows, and I have food from my fellowship offering at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you and have found you. I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband is not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and will not be home until full moon. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter, like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver, like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways, 
or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she has brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. Let's pray. Lord, we have opened your word together, and we're praying that by your spirit, through your word, you would speak to us. And we pray that the things that we've found here would be helpful, that, that you would warn us of certain danger, that you would inspire us to pursue wisdom, that you would make us a people who are careful in terms of sexuality. Lord, I pray that you would please bless this church family and make us wise for your glory. Amen. Amen. The question I've been asking this week is, do we really need to do this again? Do I need to talk about this again? I don't love talking about sex, especially at church. In fact, I think that's probably a pretty taboo thing. Uh, as I was reflecting on it, if I were to audit the amount of sermons that I've ever given in this direction, it would be uh, a minority for sure. And then I began to think through, There's just it's just uncomfortable. A couple weeks ago when we were in chapter 5 and it was a different sex talk, the same theme, same ideas, my wife says to me, uh, if I sit by my dad, will that be weird? And I said, I don't know. I was like, yeah, you'd probably be fine. And then she, after, after the fact, she goes, no, that was real weird. You should have given me a much better heads up. And I just think in church, we are so weirded out by this concept and we're, we're unwilling to, to allow it to be a key thing that we talk about. But listen, as I wrestled with, should we do this again? I had to conclude, absolutely. God spends a lot of time and he spills a lot of ink communicating the importance of sexuality and how he's made it and how it is to be utilized in the way that it was designed for, for his glory. God spends a lot of time on this subject. And then, I, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I started to think through this particular issue. Now, I'm going to clarify terms real quick um, because some of you might not be able to track with me unless I do this. But we're talking here about adultery, which means sexual interaction with somebody who is not your spouse. If you're married, it'd be a, a different individual. You could also be single, but you could be sexually involved with somebody else who's married. That's adultery. But I also will use the term infidelity, which means to break a covenant vow. And so when you commit adultery, you are, you are also committing sexual infidelity. So this topic that we're looking at of, of sexual adultery, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I threw out the fact that personally speaking, I know, and I went back and listed them out, I know 10 different couples directly. I, I know 10 different couples that have experienced the harm of sexual adultery. And if I were to be honest with you, I think if we kind of thought through the connections that we all have, the number would be much greater. So if we don't talk about these things, there's a tremendous liability here. It's something that surprisingly happens quite often, even within the community of faith. And we need God's word to guide and lead us in this matter. So let's get to work. First, in chapter six, there's an argument that's being made that says, if you commit sexual adultery, there is a cost to it. Let's look at it here. Verse 25, the father speaking to the youth saying, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, talking about the adulteress, or let her captivate you with her eyes. Verse 26, for a prostitute can be had for a loaf of bread, but another man's wife 
phrase on your very life. It's saying you could you could uh, solicit a prostitute and there would be a payment there, but that payment is very minimal compared to if you commit sexual adultery with somebody else's spouse, you are forfeiting life. This woman phrase, this adulteress, which by the way we've said before, this is not unique to it, to one particular sect. It's using ancient Near East concepts and it's using the, the idea of an adulteress, a woman. We could apply this to an adulterous man as well. This will prey on your life. That's the cost. It goes on to say, you will be burned by it. Verse 27 and 28, can a man scoop a fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Uh, my dad, he tells this story and I love it. It's just a fun, fun story. He and cousin Billy were going up to Canada and uh, they do these canoe trips and fishing trips. And so they're going to Canada together and they buy these ponchos or sweaters or whatever they are. And they're, they're these sweaters that they're wearing together. And then they go to their campsite and they're setting up their campsite. Cousin Billy lights the fire and his arm catches on fire. Like the sweater has all the lint on it. And so it just goes right up his arm and across his whole shirt. So he jumps back and bumps into dad and dad starts on fire. And his whole shirt, you know, it's like this flash fire going across all the lint on the shirt. So they both catch on fire momentarily and then it goes out. And they just look at each other like, what just happened? And they start laughing and it becomes this fun story that they tell. Many people imagine that sexual immorality will look like that. A momentary little inconvenience, but exciting. It'll be this momentary little thing where there's a disruption, but in the long run, we're going to be just fine. And the Bible says, not so. To commit sexual adultery is not like your lint catching on fire and just quickly burning off. It's more like you taking the whole fire into your lap and you will suffer. You will be burned by it. If you do this, there is a cost to it. And this will cost you quite dearly. So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. We're not mincing words here. It is saying, if you do this, it will not go well. No one who touches the adulteress will go unpunished. It goes on to talk about the experience of what this will be like. It says that you will not experience pity or compassion or understanding. Verse 30, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth in his house. If somebody steals because they're starving to death, we look at that and we go, we can understand why you would do that. It's not okay. We're not, we're not fine with it. We're not condoning that sort of behavior. In fact, if you're caught, you're going to have to repay. But we can understand that. Not so with adultery. People do not look on those who commit adultery favorably. It says um, a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so, destroys himself. You do this and it will be devastating. Blows and disgrace are your new lot. This is your life now. Shame will never be wiped away. If you do this, it will be devastating. If you do this, you will experience social ostracization. You will lose your community and your experience will be that of devastation ongoing. Look at verses 34 and 35. There is no compensation. 
that can atone for this behavior. Verse 34 says, For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse a bribe, however great it may be. In other words, there is no way to do this and, and walk away unscathed by it. There is a cost to it. And here it's saying it very practically. If you do this, you will suffer. There is no way to atone for it. Now, here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is no matter how sexually stupid we may be, God is able to forgive. This is talking in kind of the, the earthly realm. In the earthly realm, you commit adultery. There's no, there's no atoning for it. The good news of the gospel is in the spiritual realm, Jesus Christ is willing to suffer and die in our place. And there is forgiveness of sins, including sexual sin like this. The, the example that I've given before is the woman at the well who has been married multiple times and is currently with a man who is not her husband. And the Lord meets her there and, and is able to see her at the level of her soul. And he knows everything she's ever done, all of the sexual folly she's ever committed. And he still loves her. And she is transformed by that event. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ can suffer and die in our place and we can be forgiven for our sexual sin. But the argument here in chapter 6 of Proverbs is, at the earthly level, at the, at the material level, at the level of just kind of life on the street, when you do this, you will suffer. And it is a stark warning. And it's meant to be, it's, it, as Ray Orland said, this is, not a, this is not an ethical argument. Like, hey, you shouldn't do this because it's wrong. This is strictly a, a very practical argument that says, if you do this, you will suffer. Count the cost. Are you willing to forfeit your life? Now, I find this to be helpful because the Bible, it's an interesting document. It does a lot of things for us. But the Bible has a plan for us that is both long range and short range. Long range, the Bible wants to transform us so that at the heart level, we wouldn't even be enticed towards sexual sin. That's the long range plan. At the short range, it also gives us some warnings so that we wouldn't even consider doing something stupid in this moment. And we need both. Let me illustrate it here uh, with a different idea. But imagine if things don't go your way and you get mad. You get so mad that you want to retaliate and you pick something up, and you're ready to hit somebody or slug somebody. Okay, the Bible says that if you trust in Christ, you can get a new heart. You can become a new kind of person. So when you would normally react, and you would normally retaliate, and you'd normally want to pick something up and do harm, the Bible can change you. That's really, really good news. There's a hope in Christianity that says people can change at the fundamental level of who they are. God can give, they can become a new creation that when things don't go their way, they respond with peace. That's wild. That's a very beautiful thing. The Bible tells us that is a possibility, but the Bible also says, listen, if you get upset and you pick up a, a baseball bat and you want to do harm, it also says you will go to jail. There are consequences. And the Bible then gives us kind of two different things that we need to pay attention to. In the long range, we're trying to change. We want people to be different. But in the short range, we're also saying, if you do this, you will suffer. So long range, the hope for a sermon like this is we would, we would become sexually sane people, people who are happily married and satisfied sexually in our marriages. That's the long range goal. But short term, we're talking, 
if you entertain this today, the Bible is saying there is a cost to it. It is your life. This will devastate you. So right now, don't even do it. Don't even think about doing it. And long term, let's continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us the beautiful truth of the gospel so we become wise people. So that's what the, the first part of chapter 6 is doing, is giving us that very practical argument. And I felt the need to say it in very strong terms for a few different reasons. I never want to get before the throne of God's grace and give an account for my ministry, which will happen, and have somebody be able to say to me, I don't think I would have done that if Cor would have warned me. Which I think in a lot of places that, that excuse would be somewhat legitimate because we're uncomfortable talking about these sorts of things. I never want to get to a situation where somebody in our congregation commits adultery and they said, listen, I, I don't think I would have done that if you would have told me this stuff here. And the Bible says that leaders are those who must give an account. The Bible says in James chapter 1 that not everyone should desire to be a teacher because teachers will be judged more strictly. Or Ezekiel says there is an assignment that God gives to some people to be a, somebody who warns other people. And if catastrophe is coming, that watch person has a, a, an obligation to tell other people there is danger. And if they keep their mouth shut, God says, you're culpable, you're guilty, you're in trouble. I don't want to have that experience personally. So here we are. Don't do it. Do not do this. Secondly, we get the, the event examined in, in chapter uh, 7. The father is speaking to the young people. And I'm happy that there are some teens in here because this is the kind of message that we need when we're young to know this is very dangerous stuff and I need to learn wisdom. So the father is speaking to the child and he, he's describing the event. How does this happen? First time that I was uh, made aware of an adulterous situation with a ministry leader, I sat there mad just asking that question. How did this happen? How did this happen? This gives us the description of how these things unfold. So the father looked out through the lattice, verse 6. And he says, I saw among the simple, I noticed among the young men, a youth who had no sense. He looks out and he sees a young person who is uncommitted. That's a term that Bruce Walk he uses in, in his commentary. He describes, in the intro, he describes all the characters we'll meet. The wise person, the fool. Uh, father wisdom, mother wisdom, uh, the righteous, the wicked, but then there's this category of youth, and, and some of them are undecided. They haven't onboarded wisdom yet. They could go any direction. They're just kind of open. That's what's happening here. It's this young man who had no sense, this young man who has not committed his life to wisdom, and so he's, uh, he's wide open. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He's just kind of living life and enjoying it and just... Yeah, yeah, there's a community of faith, and they say some things about how we should live, but maybe the world has a better idea. And so this young man, without any sense, finds, in place, finds himself in the wrong place at the wrong time. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house at twilight as the day was fading, as the dark of night set in. So this unwitting, unsuspecting, unwise young man finds himself in harm's way. He puts himself in an environment where he can be enticed and destroyed. A woman comes out to meet him, verse 10. Then out came a woman 
to meet him dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. So she's described here, and, and all we're told about her physicality is she's dressed provocatively, dressed like a prostitute, meaning she's wearing an outfit, drawing attention to her body and the sexuality of her body. But she's dressed like a prostitute, and now he begins to describe her heart. That he says she is crafty. She has a crafty intent. That's interesting. That's how the serpent is described in Genesis. The serpent is the craftiest of all God's creation. The devil, the serpent. Here this, this uh, woman comes out, and she has this crafty intent. Verses 11 and 12, she's unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home, now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she lurks. In other words, it's saying she is discontent with her lot in life. She does not love the fact that she's married. She does not consider her home to be the place that, that she should reside and be happy and find fulfillment there. So she is unruly and defiant and deviant. She now entices the young man, verse 13. She takes hold of him and kissed him and with a brazen face begins to speak. So now she's moving in on her prey. She's moving in and making uh, it very plain what she's intending to do here. She grabs him, she kisses him, and she speaks. There's no wavering in her voice. There's no embarrassment about what she's going to suggest. She is brazen in her commitment to breaking her covenant vows to her husband. She speaks very plainly here. She flirts with this man and makes it obvious of her intentions. Verse 15, so I came out to meet you. I looked for you, and I found you. She, she lays eyes on this young man, and she says, this is what I've been waiting for. Here you are. I've been, I've been waiting for you, speaking these words that are, for, for the young man, they're, they're exciting. Uh, if, if you love to be communicated in this way, this is, this is enticing stuff, and he's feeling this attention from this woman. So I came out to meet you, I looked for you, and I found you. Then she makes it very plain. Uh, verses 16 to 18, she describes what she is intending to do sexually. Verse 16, I've covered my bed with colored linens from Egypt. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. Now she's making it very plain what she wants to do. Come into my home and come and sleep with me. Come to my bed that I have prepared for you. The last thing that she does in the enticement is this radical thing in verses 19 to 20. She says they won't get caught. Look at it. My husband is not home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money, and he will not be home until full moon. In order for this to be uh, plausible, the young man has to believe he's not going to get caught. And so she says, my husband's not home. He's not coming home anytime soon. We will not get caught. It's interesting, Waltke points this out. What she does here is very similar to what the serpent does in, in the garden, where the serpent says, you won't die if you eat this fruit. I know God told you some things and you think you heard him, but the truth is you won't die and directly opposes the truth of what God has said. That's what's going on here. And it is confusing for this individual because, um, because he is not wise enough to know this 
cannot be true in a world where there is a God. To, to think that you can do this and get away with it is nonsensical. I skipped over a part, so I need to go back and look at it because I want you to see this, um, this portion here uh, that I think is so important. In verse 14, jumping back a little ways, one of the things that makes this enticing is the sexual event becomes spiritualized. I didn't want to blow by this. I, I accidentally passed over it in my notes. One of the things that moves somebody into that realm of being susceptible to falling into this adulterous behavior is this feature. And I thought about it this week, and I was like, is this true? And Proverbs is written to the community of faith. So, if, so it's for people who are seeking to follow God. That's why this is here. One of the things that happens within the community of faith where people commit adultery is the event gets spiritualized. Um, verse 14, today I've fulfilled my vows. I have food from my fellowship offering at home. She's saying, I am a religious person and I have done these things that are required of us. And it gets confusing then. She says, this is Leviticus chapter 7 where there's a free will offering, a vow offering that's being made. You take, it, you take an animal to the priest. The priest takes that sacrifice that you're making makes the sacrifice, takes a portion of it for the priesthood, and then sends you home with your doggy bag, your, your to-go meal, your religious meal that you are to go and eat that very day. And she says, I've done all of that. I've fulfilled my vows. I've made my sacrifices. The meal is at the table, and here I am bringing you into it. Now, this is, this is wild, but when I thought about all the people that I've been exposed to that have committed adultery, this is a pretty consistent feature. The event gets spiritualized. And I don't want to go into specifics in a way that would be unhelpful. Let me just kind of generalize it here. Often what happens is people will say, I'm unhappily married and God has given me you. And God gets co-opted into somebody's fantasy. God has given me you. This is providence. It's providence that I have been so unhappy and now there's a way for me to experience happiness. We'll live happily ever after under the blessing of God, to which I say, absolutely not. You are fooled if you think that's how it's going to play out. But there is often a spiritualization of the adulterous activity. So she is enticing him. She's inviting him. She's making it very plain. She's saying, you will not get caught if we do this. So everything will be just fine. And nothing could be further from the truth. So look at verse 21. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. Let me spend a minute here reminding you of the importance of communication. Two weeks ago, this was a big point that I made. Sexual sin doesn't start in the bedroom. It starts with your communication. She seduces him. Look back at the text. How much of the text was given to describing her physicality? Very little. Very little. She's dressed like a prostitute. That's it. The rest of it is the stuff that comes out of her mouth. When we are very vulnerable at falling into sin, not simply because we see things that are attractive, but because of what we hear. And if you want to safeguard your marriage, and if you want to have sexual fulfillment in your marriage, go back and listen to that other sermon, but start with this. Start with communicating. Communicate in a way that builds intimacy that builds trust, that builds closeness, and protect your communication from happening in other places where it would be inappropriate. 
Don't allow somebody to speak these words to you that would entice you in that direction. And don't be the sort of person offering the words that would lead somebody to be seduced by you. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. This leads to his death. Verse 22. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it will cost him his life. This unwitting young man goes in with her to his death. And in fact, that's the point that's being made over and over again through this passage. This will cost your life. And this young man unwittingly goes in to die. So how do we avoid sexual folly? How do we avoid the folly of adultery? Two things I want to share with you. Warning and wedding. Warning, which we've already seen throughout the entire text. We need to just remind ourselves of the severity of what this would cost. We need to rehearse over and over again the danger of sexual sin. Chapter 6, verse 26. The adulterer preys on your life. The adulterer is coming after you to destroy you. Verse 32. A man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. That's the cost. You will ruin your life. Verse 29 of chapter 6. No one who touches her will go unpunished. You cannot do this and get away with it. It will be held accountable by God and you will have to give an account to him for it. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Furthermore, there's shame. Endless shame as it describes in those ending verses of chapter 6. There's no mercy from other people. There's no pity from other people. It is only trouble for you. Then in chapter 7, we see it here. My sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she's brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Do not go this way because you look at the battlefield and it is littered with bodies of the mighty. Harrison was um, homesick a couple days this week with a little tummy thing. He's just fine now, but got some extra time with the little dude. And I was trying to work and he turned on Avengers. You can question my parenting if you want, that's totally fine and well-deserved. So he turns on Avengers, and he just wants to watch the fight scene. And so at the end of Endgame, it's all the Avengers battling against Thanos. And he's like, Dad, come and see this. And I've seen it before, but I'm like, okay. So I come up, and I'm sitting there with him, and we're watching it. And I'm like, why is Thanos so strong? Right? You've got Thor. You've got Captain America. You've got Miss Marvel. You've got... Uh, all these different people, and Thanos somehow always gets the upper hand in these fights. And, and I'm just like, man, this is insane. And then I thought about this first, and I remembered, this is how sexual adultery works. You look at it, and it will surprise you how powerful it is. It destroys the mighty. There are people that you would never suspect would ever commit adultery, and then it happens. And it just takes your breath away. You're like, I don't get it. And the Bible says, no, 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 this is incredibly powerful. Many are the victims that have been brought down. The slain are a mighty throng. And then verse 27, it leads to death. Her house is a highway to the grave, leading down to the chambers of death. So we 
Consider yourself warned. If you do this, it will be only trouble for you. It will not go well. The Bible repeatedly says, do not do this. The second thing, though, is more of that long-range plan of becoming people who aren't even enticed by it. Now, here's the second thing I want you to do. The second thing that should be helpful is the idea of a wedding. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, a traditional wedding of a, you know, a groom and a bride. I'm talking about the idea that's presented here where the wise people wed themselves to wisdom. Look at it. It says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 7, it's using romantic language and it's applying it to the relationship that the person should have to wisdom. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. Have you ever heard that expression before? It's an it's a ancient Near East marriage expression. It's talking about the love that somebody would have for uh, their spouse. And it's saying you ought to have that sort of relationship with wisdom. You should bind yourself to wisdom. Look at verse 3 and 4. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Stay to wisdom. You're my sister. And to insight, you're my relative. And again, it's lost on us because... We don't understand the ancient Near East, but those are ancient Near East categories of love. In Song of Songs, is the, the lovers describe each other. You're my sister. You're, you're my relative. But it's saying we need to be, if we want to be wise people, we need to marry wisdom. We need to bind ourselves to it. We need to commit ourselves to wisdom. We need to commit ourselves to learning the way of wisdom so that in those moments where we would be enticed, where there would be an opportunity to sin, we would call to mind very quickly what wisdom would demand from us. If we will do this, wisdom will protect us. Look at verse 5 of uh, chapter 7. It says, They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman and her seductive words. Marry wisdom and wisdom will protect you. That's also what it said in chapter 6. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp, this teaching is a light, and correction and instruction are the way of life. If you commit yourself to wisdom, wisdom will commit herself to you. She will protect you. It will protect you from the, the wayward woman. Wisdom will prevent you. So there will be opportunity. We're sexual beings. We will have opportunities where we see something, we think something, and wisdom will rush to our side and say, no, this is folly. Wisdom demands that you remind yourself of your covenant to God and your covenant to your spouse. Wisdom will protect you and watch over you. So finally, here's the last thing that I want to say about this idea of wedding yourself to wisdom. You need to make that vow early and often. You need to commit yourself to this idea before it becomes the enticement moment. Remember in, in chapter 7, verse 7, where it's describing that young man, this unwitting young man, this uncommitted young man, part of his problem is he hadn't already decided what he would do in that moment. He was vulnerable. He was open. He was like, okay, well, it's going this way. This is exciting. This will be fun. If you marry wisdom, you need to make that decision right now no matter what sexual enticement might come my way, I have already decided it is not for me. And you make that commitment today to prevent you for that day. 
you say, I am committed to God's ways and his wisdom. And, and then when those enticements come, wisdom looks more like this. I don't want anything to do with that. That would be harmful on so many different levels. So church, may we be a wise people living our lives in a way that's pleasing to God, careful with our sexuality, knowing that God has given it to us as a blessing to be enjoyed in the covenant of marriage and protecting and honoring the marriage bed. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that having opened your word together, we ask that you would help us be wise. I pray for the warning that you've given us today, and I pray that it would just stand out to some of us. That in those moments where we feel vulnerable or tempted, I pray that the things that were shared today would, would startle us, would actually awaken us to the stupidity of sexual sin. And we would come to the conclusion, it is not worth it. I'm not going to ruin my life over this. And Lord, I pray that you would change us so that our hearts would be in line with who you are and your design for marriage and sexuality. Make us the kind of people where these sorts of enticements aren't even attractive to us. But let us be so in love with you and your wisdom. And for those of us that are married, let us be so in love with our spouses that we enjoy the blessings that you've given us and we are content and happy. So Lord, please make us a wise community of faith for your glory. Amen.